Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, the birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the vision... Of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it, and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the heart of a beast, and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may this dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant and which was food for all, 
under which the beasts of the field dwell, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion is to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beast of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was yet in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom. and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. May God add to his reading his own blessing and understanding of his word. Let us pray. Lord, as... Daniel prayed before you that he might receive understanding and knowledge of the word which you revealed to him. Lord, how we pray that even now you would grant these things to us, that you would declare openly and grant us understanding and truth. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come now to Daniel chapter 4. We mentioned last time the grand theme of this book. It is the absolute sovereignty of God. It is so patently clear. It is written on every chapter. It is thoroughgoing. You cannot escape this theme. It is as clear as the nose before our faces. And that theme is on such grand display here in chapter 4. Because it is at least possible that there never has been such a rival to the sovereignty of God as this man Nebuchadnezzar. He was not merely the absolute sovereign over his own people, his own nation in Babylon, but he had he conquered all the other lands around him, indeed, as it says, to the ends of the earth, to form the prototypical empire, the Babylonian Empire which was, in God's own words, the head of gold, compared to which even the Roman Empire was considered of much, much lesser lesser and, and inferior quality. And so kings and princes were just were mere pawns in his hands. In fact, he had a prison full of them. And the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, was just one of them. There he was in his prison garments, blinded, captive in fetters, There in the prison were with all the other captured kings and princes of the earth, languishing. In Daniel's word in the next chapter, as he describes, by the way, to look back at this, as he describes it to a successor, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty which he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. That, brothers and sisters, would seem to be the very definition, the very archetype of absolute sovereign authority and power. And to add to it, in the course of his conquest, he had put down many false gods, hadn't he? He was like... Sennacherib, whose servant spoke those words in 2 Kings 18.33, in the days of Hezekiah. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hands of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim and Hina and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the land have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And that was a lesser king speaking. Of course, we know that God did not allow these words to stand. Sennacherib spoke them to his own destruction. The Lord was going to respond to them. He did very directly. In the next chapter of Second Kings 19, verse 22, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. Verse 28, because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. And sure enough, that is precisely what happened. It appeared that by this time, the king himself, Sennacherib, had come to the the camp. But you know what happened On a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. 
And when the people rose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed. It, didn't, it seems like he was about the only one. His entire army dead, and he left then to return in shame and humiliation to his own land. And he didn't remain even in that condition for very long. Sennacherib departed and went away, returned home, and remained in Nineveh. Now it came to pass that as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch his god, that his sons Adramlech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword. Just so he knows. And everyone else knows that those kind of words are not going to stand. This God is different than the other gods. And even as he was worshiping his own God in that God's temple, he could not, that God could not even save him personally just to put the cherry on top. But the difference, which would be perplexing, the difference here between that situation and the situation with Pharaoh, for instance, and Pharaoh being so categorically put in his place, and the situation now with Nebuchadnezzar is that the Lord did not rescue the people of Judah. Indeed, that whole land was given to Nebuchadnezzar to do what no other king had done, which was to conquer the holy city, to break down the wall, and even to destroy the temple of the living God. Something no one else had been permitted. Now we know that God had ordained this. We know it was all part of his plan to judge the spiritual adultery of the people. But I think we could call this a very delicate situation. Where the world, if the world would only to see this ruined temple of the Lord and a victorious Nebuchadnezzar, they might begin to wonder maybe that the Lord was just like all the rest of those gods. Maybe he's no different. And friends, this, I think, is the deep spiritual context of the book of Daniel. This, I think, is why there is a book of Daniel and all the events that are recorded in it is that to lay down once and for all so that all the world might know that that is not true. That though God in his sovereign plan allowed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the temple and to carry on, he was going to more than once humiliate this great man, this greatest emperor ever. He was going to bring him absolutely to his knees repeatedly and have it recorded for everyone to see in the book of Daniel. That's what we have. What's the lesson? The most high rules, that the Lord reigns. It's not just a private lesson that God's people take from it, that he wasn't willing to admit. This is what Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote with his own hand and published for the world to say. He told us the Lord reigns. And surely we must believe it. So our title tonight is The Lord Reigns. And there are four points. The Lord warns. The Lord judges, the Lord humiliates, and the Lord restores. Warns, judges, humiliates, restores, all because the Lord reigns. Well, first the Lord warns. It is the prerogative of a great king to give those who are transgressing against him a fair warning in order that they might turn from their ways. Because great kings are merciful to those who are penitent before them. This is, by the way, the, the reeve. I don't know, it's been a while since we've spoken of that, that Hebrew term that is a covenant lawsuit. When a messenger of the covenant comes and declares against the people and declares their transgression, their sin, and says, turn away from that, lest the great king whom I represent come and crush you. That's, by the way, in essence, what the Rabshakeh was doing in 1 King 18. The great king was giving fair warning to the, the vassal king out here 
Turn, turn away, lest you be destroyed. And so God in his magnificence and all of his power gives Nebuchadnezzar a warning. He does so, of course, in two parts. He sins in the dream itself. And that dream, though he didn't really understand what it meant, it had the immediate effect of unsettling this great king. In verse 5, I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. He didn't even understand what it meant fully, but he knew enough it had the effect of greatly unsettling him. And then, after all the magicians and astrologers once again fail him, and you, you do wonder why they still have jobs in this kingdom, once again fail him, they bring in Daniel. And Daniel comes as the prophet of the living God to declare the word of God to him. He comes as a covenant lawyer to declare that warning to him. And you notice, of course, he doesn't do so in any spite. He does so in the greatest respect in order that he might turn. Now, I might just say as an aside, notice how that Nebuchadnezzar deals with Daniel's name. Did you notice that as we went along? It says in verse 8, at last Daniel came before me. And then parenthetically, he has to explain, his name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. That's the name I gave him. But in him is the spirit of the holy God. He recognizes there's a difference here, my God and the holy God. And in fact, on three different occasions, we see that as he's relating what happened in the past, he says, I called him Belteshazzar back then. But as he's now relating to things in the present, he calls him Daniel. Why? (laughs) Because he's no longer so willing to obliterate the name of the living God and to put in its place the name of his God, Bel. He recognizes that the name of the true God is in Daniel, and that's the one he's using. He's only referring now to Belteshazzar because that's the way that he would have been known. Well, anyways, Daniel declares the meaning of the dream to him. It says in verse 24, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. Now this is a repeated phrase, isn't it? Do we need to wonder what this chapter is about? Until you know, until you know, the Most High reigns in the kingdom of men. Now this is worded as if it were a fully settled matter. It's not war- worded as a warning, but we know that the warning in, always, in every such case, whenever there is a, a word given in advance, the warning is implicit. It's just like in the situation of the prophet Jonah going to the great city of Nineveh. He says 40 days and, the, and Nineveh will be destroyed. It doesn't say, but if you turn, then it won't be. The warning is implicit in the declaration. There would be no declaration were there not a warning. And so it is here. There is a warning which is implicit in there being some advance notice of this. And so it is rightly explained by Daniel in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now we see that in his pride he was acting unrighteously and imperiously as we so often see among dictators even today. As no one holds them to account, as they are lifted up in their pride, they have no, no, they're, they're not humble even before their own laws and simply act in the most unjust ways. 
Well, for 12 months, it seems that he actually did heed that warning. And maybe for a while, he tried to humble himself. He tried to, to make amends. And there was a stay of execution. And here again, we're reminded that the Lord gives ample warning. He is not like some petty dictator who simply strikes out at the moment of some fleeting opportunity, lest you not have another opportunity. The Lord's not like that at all. He can do all things in the moment of his own plans. But rather, Ezekiel 33.11 says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And you see, this is the bigger picture. The Lord reigns. That is why he warns. Just because he reigns, he is able and willing to warn the wicked to repent. He's not losing the element of surprise. He's not in the position of some weakling. But rather in his greatness, rather in his sovereignty and majesty, he extends a warning in order that the wicked may turn from their ways. That is what this word of God is indeed today to all who hear it, that you ought to turn from your ways. Well, the Lord warns, but secondly, the Lord judges. Because unfortunately, a year passes and Nebuchadnezzar returns to his old ways In verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling for my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Obviously exalting himself beyond all measure without the the slightest reference to the great and holy God. You see, that's not the way that a vassal king should represent himself. He is just the vassal of the great, mighty, eternal God, the holy God, as he calls him, the true and living God who has installed him as king for his own purposes, for his own reasons. And no man should ever exalt himself in such a way. Well, the Lord, you remember, by the way, what happened uh, much later with regard to Herod. As he does not give glory to God, he is immediately struck down. And so it is here. The Lord, having already given him very ample warning and a stay of execution, was not slack now to issue judgment. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. Not a dream this time. A voice from heaven. Not a dream. Not Daniel's interpretation. A voice straight from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar. To you as it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That lesson, mentioned more than once, was now the lesson that he was going to have to learn the hard way. Didn't listen to the word, didn't listen to warning. Now he was going to have to learn it the very hard way. And let me just say that word to whomever he chooses. This is the language of the sovereignty of God. You know, people wonder, what does it mean to be reformed? Why do we care about the idea of reformed theology? Well, in some sense, all of it is is explained in that very term. To whomever he chooses. That is reformed theology. This is the sovereignty of God. This is the language of Romans chapter 9. 
In verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Those words, this unqualified, absolute declaration of the sovereignty of God, unlimited sovereignty of God over the destiny of men. Yes, the destiny of men. Some would like to limit him merely to the sparrows. They say, okay, well, he can do that with the sparrows. If they live or die, that's up to him. But me, whether I go to heaven or hell, no, that's up to me. God says, sit down. I'm the one who chooses. I show mercy on whomever I show mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And you have a choice as to how you wish to respond to those things. You can oppose them. You can say, I don't like that. But to what purpose? To what purpose? What are you going to do? You're not going to change that. You're not going to, sli- not going to change it in the slightest. Nebuchadnezzar, in all of his power and might and authority, the greatest king that had lived to that point and perhaps for all time, he can rail against such things and he can be crushed by the hand of God. So much more so for us. Or you can humble yourself before God. You can humble yourself before God and ask for his grace and we know that he is abundant in his mercy. He loves to show mercy to those who come to him humbly and ask for forgiveness. Ask For instance, for the gift of the Holy Spirit that they might believe. He loves to give these gifts. Abundant and long-suffering. Well, he is sovereign. But we do not forget. And all these, he's merciful. But we do not forget that the Lord judges. He is our judge. The Lord warns. But then when people do not turn, eventually he will certainly judge. And third, the Lord humiliates. He's able to do that. Daniel had declared in verse 24, This is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. They shall drive you from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you to what? Till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And that is exactly what happened. That is precisely what happened. The very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. And I think we should, we should mark, we should recognize that just as the long-suffering of God is shown in the extended stay of execution. And, and there was great mercy in this. He had more than enough already. I mean, actually, you can begin with the beginning of, of Daniel and kind of count things up. And he'd already had a couple chances, really, to understand this about God and to humble himself. And so God was abundantly merciful in, in giving this day, but just as that demonstrated the long-suffering and the patience of God, so the glory of God is also seen in the immediacy of this execution of the sentence now. It did not take him months or years to develop some mental illness in him. One moment he was perfectly sane, perfectly normal in all of his, well, perhaps lacking the sanity to humble himself before God, perhaps, But the next moment he was struck down like a beast. 
He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen someone in that condition, but it's indicative of the most drastic of situations, most drastic of mental illnesses. He had well and truly and completely lost his mind. They had no particular reason to drive them from among men. He was their, their king, and surely if they could have controlled him, surely if they could have dealt better with him, they would have. But he was not able to be controlled. He was as a beast And the manner, you see, of this particular humiliation, it was done in order to exact, to extract the greatest humiliation possible. No longer the great king in his majesty and splendor, but rather a homeless man. He hadn't built great Babylon. He didn't even have a home to live in. And rather standing and exalting himself up to heaven, he was forced on the ground and all fours eating grass like a beast in the field. The humiliation was complete. And it was to the everlasting glory of God that he demonstrated these things. Far more so than immediately bringing him to his death. He could have done that. But for seven years, the greatest king in all of history, on all fours, on the ground of the earth, like an animal before the living God. Brothers and sisters, do you see see that he's able to humble you? This is our God. No one, no one can walk before him in their pride and remain that way. Seven years. Now, among other things, this means that it could not possibly have been simply swept under the rug. Like when, for instance, I don't know, the dictator of North Korea or if Russia goes on some unexplained hiatus, we wonder what, is, what has happened and we don't really know. Other dictators have gone on this hiatus and it turns out that something has happened to them and sometimes they're never seen again, sometimes they recover. But no, even in the times before electronic media, there is no way to conceal this complete absence of the king from any public uh, seeing, uh, showing whatsoever. Had it been for seven days, absolutely. Had it been for seven months, they might have been able to pull it off. But for seven years, this was no longer any secret. The word had surely gotten out. And all knew that such a humiliation had taken place. Now in summarizing the theology of this humiliation, one of the best ways we have is surely what is found in the next chapter is Daniel himself. Years later as an old man recounts these things in Daniel 5.18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, because this is a gift of God, let's not forget that whatever we have, whatever Nebuchadnezzar had and whatever we have, it is a gift of God. If you are more successful, if you are more intelligent, if you are more able, if you are more beautiful, if you are more whatever you are, it is because God has made you that way. God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingdom and majesty Glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was disposed from his kingly throne. And they took his glory from him 
Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. This is the lesson. This is the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord humiliates. And thirdly, the Lord restores. We read in verse 34, at that time, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. In some sense, the least expected of the outcomes. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Well, truly the Lord has brought him to repentance. Truly the Lord has brought him to a a true understanding. This man is a theologian. He is orthodox. He is reformed. In more than one way, he understands the truth of these things at long last. God has brought him. You know, this is all to the glory of God, isn't it? God, to his glory, brought him up in all of his majesty. God, to his glory, brought him down in all of his humiliation. God, in his glory, brought him back up as he was restored to his former glory. As there was a restoration. Again, amazingly, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom. You might ask, how is it that this great empire held together for seven years without its king? Well, what do you know? In the sovereignty of God, as we have the the most exalted of, of kings and emperors, we also had the most able of ministers that has ever lived. Daniel and all of his wisdom and all of his ability was there to keep things running, no doubt. And indeed, it says, an excellent majesty was added to me. Wow. So we already had such majesty, but what we are told is that he had even greater majesty given when he had humbled himself. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? Those who we see, even the most successful in whatever sphere of life, if we see them in their pride, there is an element that is always taken away from them. As we have to acknowledge, however able they might be, that we have to acknowledge their ability in one way or another, we always, we, we always are reserved about it because, yes, but they certainly know it, don't they? And there's an element by which that majesty is diminished, that glory is diminished, that honor is diminished because of that pride. And then when a Christian, in true humility, in, in, in giving all glory to God, actually those things are only increased. And it is a a wholehearted giving of thanks to God for his goodness in setting up someone with such majesty and authority. And that's what happened. God was able to restore. He likes to do that, you see. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. But, you know, that is the wonderful thing for us that we consider those who are sinners, those, unfortunately, who have been lifted up in pride. The Lord, yes, he is more than able to humble and even, yes, to humiliate those who are lifted in pride. But so very often he delights to restore us 
And how thankful we are that that is also to the glory of God in his mercy and in his grace. That he restored such a one and even added to it. Well, we move to application and the question is how do we respond to this absolute sovereignty of our God? How do we respond to this lesson that we should know? The lesson repeated so many times that you might know that the Most High reigns. That the Lord reigns. That is the point of this sermon. That the Lord reigns. How do we respond to it? Obviously, Humble yourself. That is the obvious and most direct thing. Humble yourself. Do what Nebuchadnezzar did in verse 37. I praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. He's able to put down, and he surely will, whether now or in eternity, he will certainly humble each and every one of the proud. And we must humble ourselves. That is, that is the advice. If, if, if Daniel could come before the king and say, he was my advice, king. Humble yourself and repent. Then my, my advice, as, the, as it were, the prophet of God before you, relaying the words of God to you, here's my advice. Humble yourself before God and repent. Because 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Isn't that a wonderful promise? It doesn't, exalt you. It doesn't ask you to humble yourself in order that you might forever remain in the dust of the earth, but that he might exalt you. He cannot do that, you see. He in his righteousness, he in alone his holiness and glory could not possibly allow you to remain in your exalted, self-exalted situation. No, he may well exalt you, and he delights to exalt his children, but first they must humble themselves before him. They must. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, of course, that means to receive his treaty of this great king, to receive the treaty, the gracious covenant that he offers through faith in Christ. This is, these, these are the terms. And the prideful, those who exalt themselves, say, no, I want to build great Babylon. And I'm going to build myself a tower up to heaven. That's the original Babylon, wasn't it? The Tower of Babel, where they say, we're going to build a tower up to heaven. And that is what each and every person, apart from the mercy of, of God in, in believing the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what they do. They want to save themselves. You ask the question, as we did in Christianity Explored. How do you think that you're going to enter into heaven? How do you think you're going to get into, into the kingdom of heaven? And what's the answer? doesn't matter if you've, you've, you've seen in a video a moment before the right answer. Typically, the right answer is the answer that comes to the mind of every last unsaved person is, well, I can do, the, I, I can do this. I can be a good person. I can obey the commandments. I can give to charity. I can do, I can do, I can do, and, and that's why I'll be going to heaven. But no... We must humble ourselves. And let's not kid ourselves that the gospel is certainly humbling. That's why people don't like it. That's why people would make up absolutely any gospel in the whole world other than the one true Christian gospel because it is so humiliating. It says that all of your good works are as rubbish. It says, thank you very much, I don't need your help in the slightest. In fact, you can't even contribute. No, no, in fact, if you want to even add one tiny, tiny portion in a million to your salvation, that, that categorically 
will keep you from it. You must repent even of your righteous deeds if you think that they will earn you salvation. Rather, you in great humiliation must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive as a pure gift, gratuitously, the salvation he offers through faith in Christ. So we have to humble ourselves, we have to humble ourselves to believe, and we should, by the way, be on the lookout then, we should be on guard as Christians then, of going back up into our pride. You know, in verse 4, it says, Nebuchadnezzar was just describing his situation. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. And in some sense, that's the problem. Because that's like the proverb in Proverbs sixteen eighteen that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. No, it's not inevitable. It's not, it, there's no inextricable link between flourishing and being lifted up in pride. But very often, that's when it happens. Because you see, in times of great need, in times of terrible trials, we are already, as it were, on our hands and knees before God, asking, begging for mercy and for help. And we, cannot, we can't even lift ourselves up in pride. But after deliverance comes, and there are days of ease, we grow complacent. And we must be very, very much on our watch. We must be on our guard that we do not be lifted up in pride. Humble yourself before God. Secondly, we should worship. That's what we do when we come into the presence of such a great God, such a great sovereign God. That is what we do. We worship. That is what Nebuchadnezzar did. And he began his, his telling of these things in verse 3, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I think there have been hymns based on this. We could surely write one easily on this. And then in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. Isn't that beautiful? He's worshiping God in that. That's what we should do with it. After we humble ourselves and we worship the great God. That's a problem with being lifted up in pride. We can't really worship. Right? The, the posture of worship is here. God is here and the posture of worship is here. And as we lift ourselves up, As the months pass since last we've been humbled, we stop worshiping as we should. Because as long as we're here, he cannot be there. And you see, when we then are brought to a situation of humiliation, as we humble ourselves and we should worship the living God as we recognize the greatness, we honor and extol the King of Heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. We do as the great multitude in Revelation 19.6 says, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. What do we do with the fact that the Lord reigns? We worship. And thirdly, we rest secure in it. God has shown us once and for all that he is able to humble to the, the dust, the greatest and most powerful of kings. And are there greater than those, than, than him today? Are there greater than Nebuchadnezzar reigning over us and oppressing the church? I don't know. I think at least in our case, we have lesser men with lesser authority and lesser kingdoms to worry about. And therefore, we should rest in the greatest of security that the Lord is able to rescue us. The Lord is able to deliver his people as we saw last time. We should rest secure in his sovereignty and greatness and power and not be anxious. That's the thing. Because, of course, our tendency 
as well. You kind of on our way up from on our, on here in the ground, in the valley of humiliation, we worship him. And you know what else we do? We rest secure in him because we say, look, we've tried. I just recently tried. It didn't work. And we're there in full understanding of the goodness of God and in our dependence upon him. But on our way up, we forget about it. And we start being anxious because we think it's down to us. We should rest secure in his reign. Fourthly and finally, we should testify. As you know, once again, believe it or not, this pagan king, although one begins to wonder whether he's, we don't know exactly where he ended up. We don't know. I don't think it would completely shock us were we even to see him in heaven. We don't know that. But he testified. He said in verse 2, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. That's what he thought was good. He didn't have to do it, but he thought it was good. He thought it was fitting. He thought it was suitable to having been so dealt with. He doesn't say, I thought it, I had to relate to you the unfortunate circumstances of my recent demise and, and return and, and how this cruel God has dealt with me. He says, I thought it good to declare the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. You see, he understands the mercy of God in these things. It's amazing. He's done it for him even. Yes, for the glory of God, but no doubt he was so much so thankful that he was not dealt with as King Herod and immediately brought to destruction, immediately killed. He rightly deserved it, as we all do. He rightly deserved it, yet he was given another chance. And he wanted to declare the mercy of God to the whole world. Now that is very much our situation as well. Do we not have some way in which we can let people know about the great and living God, the ways that the Most High God has worked for us? Is there nothing that he has ever done for us that is worth relating to others, testifying to others? Should we not give glory to God in witnessing and telling others? You know, sometimes people wonder how, how can they be a good evangelist? How can they present the gospel? And, you know, we've had classes on how to present the gospel. We, we do that in various scenarios, and I'd be glad to help you to, to learn a little bit more. But, you know, the one thing that we can all do is simply testify to others what the Lord has done. And sometimes that's the easiest, sometimes that's the, the most natural and the most effective thing we could possibly do. And we know that if nothing else happened, God is glorified as we bear testimony to the goodness of God as he has dealt with us in his justice and in his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we do glorify God. We extol the living and true God, you who are able to put down the most exalted of men as if they were absolute nothing. Indeed, how all the men in the earth are as Absolutely nothing in the scales. And you were able to bring the lowly and the humble and the weak to the greatest of heights. And to bring us up into the heavenlies that we might be the bride of Christ forever. Lord, we worship you. We recognize, Lord, both your long-suffering and your mercy. Also your justice and absolute sovereignty in all these things. And we do not rail against you. We do not resist your sovereign determination, but rather we humble ourselves. And we ask, Lord, that indeed you would grant us repentance and grant us faith 
that you might lift us up in due season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.